Now, this is the fourth week of our series that we're calling The Journey. We're basing it on the life of Moses. We're talking about how God grows our faith, how he builds our faith muscle. And I don't know if you've discovered this or not, but as Christians, when God takes you on this journey, have you learned that there's gonna be times in our life where God is gonna ask us to do some things on this journey of faith and they make no sense whatsoever, right? In fact, sometimes the very thing that God asks us to do it seems like the opposite of what we think in our heart and mind we should be doing. I'll give you some examples. In the Bible, God tells us to give. He doesn't say, if you can afford it, give. He doesn't say, when you get out of debt, give. He doesn't say, hey, when you get that dream job and you have a lot of extra income, give. He just says, give. And often our response when we hear things like that is, Mike, I don't even have enough money to get by as it is. What do you mean I'm supposed to give? It makes no sense whatsoever, but it's part of the journey of faith. Or maybe, maybe you're in a marriage and, and it's just a disaster. And so you're hanging out with all your you know, bitter girlfriends who are also in a marriage and it's a disaster. And they're saying, get out of the marriage, cut your losses. But then you read the Bible and God's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Marriage, I take marriage seriously. It's not only a covenant between you and your spouse, it's a covenant between you and me. And I hate divorce. And I want you to work for your marriage. I want you to fight for your marriage. But then you look at your circumstances and think it just doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Or maybe you're already divorced and you read what the Bible has to say about morality and you discover that God created this thing called sex for a husband and wife in the context of a committed marriage relationship. And anything outside of that is immorality, right? And your response is that just doesn't make any sense whatsoever. I mean, that's probably good advice for teenagers. They don't know any better. See, but you're thinking, I'm an adult. I'm responsible. I've already been married. I've already been sexually active. Mike, this doesn't make any sense biologically. It doesn't make any sense socially. I just don't get it. Why would God ask us to do these things? But I'm telling you as Christians, there are gonna be those critical times in our lives, those critical times as God takes us on our spiritual journey when God is gonna ask us to do certain things, they're just not going to make sense. But this is what I want you to know up front. The God we serve is a very reasonable God. And God does not ask us to do anything. Now, this is the key part of this statement, okay? God does not ask us to do anything that doesn't make sense from his perspective. And what we're learning in this series is that God always has a reason for what he asks us to do. And more often than not, as you're on your journey, you're gonna have one of those, oh, now I get it moments. But sometimes you will never figure out, you will never understand why God asks you to do what it is he wants you to do until you've had the opportunity to decide whether or not you're gonna actually obey God. And then he'll make things clear to you. If you have your Bible this weekend, this is what we're talking about in the series. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 15. We're gonna continue our study in the life of Abraham. So far, we've learned that in Genesis chapter 12, God came to Abraham and he said to this in verse one, go from your country, your people, your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. You will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all people on earth will be blessed through you. That was the promise that God gave Abraham. He didn't say how it was gonna happen. He didn't say how long it was gonna take. He just said, I am going to build a great nation. The nation of the Jews, it's gonna come through you, Abraham. Not only that, through the nation of the Jews, through your descendants, through your children, 
through your lineage, I am going to bring the Messiah and the Messiah is gonna be good news for all people of the earth. And Abraham, he hears that and he responds by faith by deciding to go on this journey with God and he travels to the promised land. Now I wanna pick up the story this weekend in Genesis chapter 15, verse one, and you'll notice that it says after this. Anytime you read that in the Bible, you should go back and see after what. And it's after what Donnie talked to you about last weekend, how when God called Abraham to go on this journey, he brought a lot, see Canadians do not have sense of humor, that is not funny, but a lot of baggage with him, right? And what Donnie taught us and what we learned last week from that, from that passage is even with our baggage and our issues, God remains faithful, that God is sufficient for the journey. It's an incredible lesson we learned last week. After this, verse one, chapter 15, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, do not be afraid, Abraham. By the way, that phrase appears hundreds of times in the Bible. In fact, if you wanna do a great, interesting study for a year, go find all the times where it says, do not be afraid and discover the lesson that's connected with it. But this is the first time it appears in the Bible. I wish you guys would bring Bibles to church because you can actually make notes in them. Uh, in fact, my mom's here. I have a Bible that's about 45 years old. That was my mom's. And when she was moving just recently, I said, mom, can I have that Bible? It's on my desk in my office at home. It is like a commentary. I mean, it is just full of notes of messages that she's taken over the years. But understand, the book of Genesis is a book of beginnings. And you should write right there beside chapter 15, verse two of Genesis, the very first time this phrase ever appeared, don't be afraid, don't be afraid. After the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision, do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, you have given me no children. So a servant in my household will be my heir. My servant will get my 401k, you know, my IRA, all my real estate, all my livestock because I don't have any kids. Now remember, God has already promised Abraham that he's gonna be the father of a great number of people. He's gonna be the father of a nation. The Messiah is going to come through him. But you and I both know that odds of that are happening are very, very slim if Abram doesn't have descendants, if he doesn't have children. So Abram's thinking, maybe God overlooked that point. Maybe he, he didn't realize, I'm gonna need some children for this to become reality. So Abraham points that out. And then it says in verse four, verse four the word of the Lord came to him, this man will not, will not be your heir, this Eliezer of Damascus, forget it. But a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look up at the sky and count the stars if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And when you get to verse six of chapter 15, understand this is one of the most pivotal verses in the Bible. This is the first time we actually get a glimpse into God's plan of redemption. God's plan of positioning us so that we can be restored back into a relationship with him. What that actually looks like. Because when you get to verse six, it says this, Abram believed the Lord and he, God, credited it to him as righteousness. Now, as we've seen in this series already, Abraham was very, very human. He was very, very fallible. He was far from perfect. But what God says here is, Abram, I will treat you as a righteous person. I will consider you perfection if you are willing to trust me 
for the promise that I have made to you. In other words, God is willing to accept Abraham's trusting him in place of Abraham being perfect, in place of Abraham being righteous. And it's the very same way in our relationship with God. See, we get restored, reconciled back into a relationship with God because we place our faith, our trust in what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross through his death, his burial, his resurrection. It paid the price so that we could be reconciled back to God. There's nothing that we can do. There's nothing that we can do to earn it. We have to put our faith, it's not by works, our faith in what God has done and made possible for us through his son, Jesus Christ. And when we make that decision to accept Jesus Christ as our savior, God stamps across our life righteous, righteous. And so Abraham, he believed and he trusted God for the promise of a nation, the promise of the Messiah coming through his lineage. And that's what made his relationship with God possible. But when you get to chapter 16, something amazing happens. Now, remember, Abraham is held up as the role model, the paragon of faith. But when you get to chapter 16, you notice that Abraham doesn't exactly trust God. Okay, he doesn't exactly walk by faith. Let me let me show it to you. Genesis 16, verse one. Now, Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. So she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep. Now, we're all adults. We know that doesn't mean get some footy pajamas and cuddle. It doesn't mean that. You know what it means, okay? Go have sex with my slave, okay? Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarai said, and it's a biblical way of saying it. He slept with her, but let's just make it raw. He committed adultery with Hagar. That's what it's telling us here. Abraham, the paragon of faith, commits adultery with Hagar, and guess what? She conceived, she got pregnant. When she knew she was pregnant, she, that's a reference to Sarai, began to despise her mistress. And you can understand that. Oh, I can't be pregnant, but you can be pregnant. And then you get to verse six. It says, Sarai mistreated Hagar, So she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road of Shur, just in case you weren't sure what spring it was. That's Canadian humor right there. And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress, go back home to Sarai, submit to her. The angel added, I will increase your descendants so much that they will be too numerous to count. Now notice this, the angel of the Lord also said to her, now let me tell you, as I said earlier, the book of Genesis is the book of beginnings. Everything that had a beginning began in the book of Genesis. Let me show you something maybe you didn't know. The angel of the Lord said to her, you are now pregnant and you will give birth to a son. You shall name him Ishmael, which means God hears. You will name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard your misery. Now, I want you to notice how the scriptures describe Ishmael. He will be a wild donkey of a man. Moms, how would you like that anticipation? And by the way, the NIV cleans it up a little bit, okay? Go read it in other translations. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand will be against him, and he will live in hostility toward his brothers. Everything that begins, begins in Genesis. We're gonna see the Jewish nation come from eventually Isaac, Abraham's son. 
What we're seeing here, when Abraham had sex with Hagar, is the birth of a son named Ishmael. And what you're seeing here is the beginning of the Arab race. He will live in hostility toward all his brothers. In fact, let me show you something else. Genesis 25, verse 18. His, and you can read this on your own time. This is talking about the descendants of Ishmael. His descendants settled in the area from Havlah to Shur, near the eastern border of Egypt, as you go toward Asher. Now look at this. And they lived in hostility toward all the tribes related to them. Now understand what's happening in this chapter. What you're reading in this chapter is a result of Abraham's lack of faith, his lack of trust in God. In other words, Abraham and Sarah, they're not able to just leave this into God's hands that he's gonna bring a great nation through them. They run ahead of God. They take matters into their own hands. Abraham commits adultery with Hagar. And the result is, to this day, all of this conflict, all of this heartache, all of this unrest, all of this pain between the Arabs and the Jewish nation. It all began right here in Jew. See, that's why every time I hear a politician talk about peace in the Middle East, I just smile a little bit because I'm reminded of Genesis 16, 12. He will live in hostility toward all his brothers. Get used to it, people. It isn't gonna be fixed. It started right here. It started thousands of years ago in Genesis 16. It's not gonna change. But what I want you to see, I want you to understand the consequences to Abraham's behavior. Do you remember our last series where I talked about our minds being renewed and we have to renew our minds because we have a tendency to live by lies that we've lived by our whole lives. And I pointed out one of the lies that we often live by that prevents us from being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ is that our sin won't have any consequences that nobody will really know. Our world is suffering the consequences of Abraham and Sarah's lack of faith in God thousands of years ago. You get to chapter 17, verse one. By the way, if you struggle with that, email Gary Vett, Gary V, gethope.net, and he will, he will take care of any questions you have there. But anyway, chapter 17, verse one. When Abram was 99 years old. Now let me put some things in perspective. Go back to Genesis chapter 12, when God first came to Abraham and said, I'm gonna take you to the promised land. Abram was 75 years old. 11 years later, Ishmael was born, so Abram's 86 years old. Now this is 24 years after the original promise back in Genesis chapter 12. Let me just ask you, what do you think it would be like to wait 24 years for a promise and it still hasn't come true, okay? Chapter 17, verse one. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty, walk before me faithfully and be blameless. Then I will make my covenant between me and you and I will greatly increase your numbers. Abram fell down. That's a response of worship. He was so overwhelmed at the promise, he fell down. Verse three, Abram fell down and God said to him, as for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham in the Hebrew, which means father of many. Your name will be Abraham, for I've made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you. Kings will come from you. Skip down to verse 15. God also said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you are no longer to call her Sarai. By the way, you know what that means in the Hebrew? Quarrelsome, okay? Quarrelsome. Her name will be Sarah. That means princess. See, that's an upgrade right there. She went from being quarrelsome to princess. 
I will bless her and will surely give you a son by her. I will bless her so that she will be the mother of nations. Kings of people will come from her. Now notice how Abraham responds, verse 17. Again, Abraham, Abraham fell face down, but notice he's not worshiping this time. He laughed and said to himself, Will a son be born to a man a hundred years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of 90? In other words, God, I know you're good, but have you checked out Sarah lately? I mean, she's no spring chicken, right, right? It reminds me of a joke that has nothing to do with my message, but I gotta tell it to you. Uh, Laura told me not to tell it, so you know it's gonna be good, but anyway. Uh, there's these people, they were living in a retirement home and things got kind of boring around there. So two ladies got up one day, they said, we gotta spice this place up a little bit. And so Mary said to the, Sally said, what do you wanna do? Sally says, let's go streaking. Well, there's two old guys, they sit out on the bench every day and read the newspaper and talk about the world, and try to solve the world's problems. And a few minutes later, here come the two ladies. Streaking right by them, right? And the one guy says, who in the world was that? And he said, I have no idea, but they ought to have enough dignity and self-respect to iron their clothes before they go out in public. I'll tell you that right now. See, that's American humor right there. Lot of the baggage. See, that's not funny. That's, that's funny. Just because it's wrong doesn't mean it ain't funny. You know what I'm saying? But anyway, that's what Abraham was saying. Have you checked her out? Verse 19. Then God said, yes. Yeah, sure, she's old. But your wife, Sarah, will bear you a son and you will call him Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. Let's go down to chapter 18, verse one. The Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day. Abraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. He prepares a meal for his visitors. Drop down to verse nine. Where is your wife, Sarah, they asked. There in the tent, he said. Then one of them said, and, and, and Donnie talked about uh, Christophanes last week, the manifest, manifestation of the spirit of Jesus in the Old Testament. This is one of those. Uh, you say, well, who are the other two guys? I called Gary Vett this week. I said, Gary, who's the other two guys? He says, I don't know. It could have been me and you. Maybe we just don't remember. But there's, you know, Jesus is there with two other people. And this is what he said. I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife will have a son. Now, Sarah was listening at the entrance to the tent, which was behind him. Abraham and Sarah were already very old and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, after I'm worn out and my Lord is old, will I now have this pleasure? Then the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, will I really have a child now that I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time next year and Sarah will have a son. Sarah was afraid because she heard God, Jesus in the flesh, she didn't know that, say, you know, she lied and said, I didn't laugh. But he said, yes, you did. No, I didn't, yes, you did. So you got that little conversation going on. Flip over to chapter 21, verse one. Lock, this is a cool story. I don't need to explain, just read this stuff. You ought to read the Bible, it's cool stuff in here. Verse 21, verse one. Now the Lord was gracious to Sarah, as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age 
at the very time God had promised him. Abram, Abraham gave the name Isaac to the son Sarah bore him. Anybody want to guess what Isaac means in the Hebrew? It means he laughs. He laughs. I mean, God's goodness, God's graciousness in this story, it's amazing. It is absolutely incredible. God tells Abraham and Sarah, you're going to have a son. And when Abraham hears it, he laughs. And when Sarah hears it, she laughs. And God says, we'll just go with that. We'll name the kid, he laughs, Isaac. Verse seven, and she added, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. But see, this is what I want you to understand. All of this was possible because Abraham was willing to leave a life of safety. He was willing to walk away from a life of normalcy and he was willing to join with God on a journey of faith. Two things kind of jump out to me as you go through the story of Abraham. One is just the graciousness of God who makes these wonderful, impossible promises. But the second thing is the very human and fallible Abraham who was held up, put on a pedestal, the paragon of faith and trust. But you see, you're now starting to see in this story of Abraham, he doesn't really seem like a very good truster. Which brings up a question. If he's the paragon of faith, what kind of faith is God really looking for? Let me just show you something, just kind of a sidelight, and we'll probably hit this some other time in this series, but back in chapter 17, God lays out this covenant for Abraham. And by the way, by the time we finish up Christmas, the weekend before Christmas, I'm gonna show you this covenant all the way through the Bible, right up to the Messiah, and you're gonna see how it came. It's just a beautiful story. Chapter 17, God lays out the covenant for Abraham. God says, listen, Abraham, I am committing myself to you without reservation. We are bound together by this unbreakable promise. And then he goes on and says to Abraham, and we're going to have a sign. We're going to have a sign, Abraham. And it's going to be a sign. It's going to be a sign, a reminder of our relationship of this covenant. And Abraham was like, cool. What's it going to be? God said, are you ready? Circumcision. And I am sure Abraham thought, could it be a secret password? Maybe a decoder ring, you know, one of those cool handshakes like NFL players do, you know, after they score a touchdown, something like that, right? But this is what I want you to see. God makes the promise. It's a wonderful promise. And then he waits for Abraham to respond. He waits to obey. He waits to see if he's going to obey. It's like the ball's in your court, Abraham. What are you going to do? Now, when you look at Genesis chapter 17, there's this little four-word phrase that's used twice by the writer in a couple of verses to describe Abraham's response. Genesis 17, verse 23, here it is. On that very day. On that very day, Abraham took his son Ishmael and all those born to his in his household are bought with his money, every male in his household, and circumcised them as God told them. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised and his son Ishmael was 13. Abraham and his son Ishmael were both circumcised. Here it is again, on that very day. But I want to point out twice the writer goes out of his way to say, not only did Abraham do this and follow through, but he did it on that very day. Now, why is that phrase so important to what we're talking about? I think it's because the writer wants us to understand that Abraham immediately without hesitation responded to God's commandment. I mean, think back through the story. God, God says, go to this new land. And Abraham leaves and goes to the new land. God says, circumcision. 
And Abraham follows through with it on that very day. Let me tell you something. Abraham may not have been perfect. He made a lot of mistakes and he's going to make even more. He had an incredible amount of doubt. He struggled with doubt. But I'm telling you what, he had enough faith to respond to God's command. And God's like, you know what? That's enough. I'll take that. I'll work with that. In other words, Abraham trusted God. And the way you can see all throughout this story that he trusted God is because when God nudged him or asked him to do something, he was obedient. He had enough faith to respond in obedience. And that's all God needed for God to do great things in his life through him. So of course, here's the question we're leading up to. What's keeping you from being fully obedient to God? You know, a few weeks ago, we did our series and we talked about multiplied and we talked about how we put God first in our finances and then we adjust our lifestyle and we live and, and we're doing things for the kingdom. At the end of the day, our finances are even better. And you know what? So many of you walked out of here, you were so pumped up. You sent me emails like, I am gonna do that. I'm gonna write that check. I'm gonna make that first automatic draft. I'm gonna do that. But when it came time, you know, your hand's shaking and you couldn't do it. Or maybe you did it once you couldn't bring yourself to do it again because you were so afraid of all the what ifs. This is what's keeping you from being fully obedient to God. Let me tell you something. Often it's fear. It's the fear of the unknown that keeps us from obedience. You remember when you were trying to teach your kids to swim and they didn't want to get in the water because they were scared of the water. They should be scared of the water. That's a good thing, right? So what did you do? You'd get in the water and your kid would stand on the side of the pool and you would say, jump, jump, jump. But what was the phrase that you kept saying over again? Come on, jump. You would say, don't be afraid. Come on, jump. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Just jump. Why do we say that? Well, we don't say it to provide comfort. We say it to motivate them to take action. Don't be afraid. Just do it right. I'm telling you, in the same way in your life, you're going to receive some promptings. You're going to receive some nudgings, some commandments from God. And sometimes when you sense God is moving in your life, it is not going to make any sense whatsoever. And you're going to be paralyzed by fear. But I will tell you this, in order to respond in faith and go on the journey, you're going to have to face the fear. The point is this, don't let your fear keep you from responding in obedience. Don't let your fear keep you from experiencing what God has for you on the journey. I mean, go back to the pool when I'm in the water and I want my kids to jump. What kind of trust did I want them to have? It didn't have to be 100% certainty. It didn't even have to be 100% trust. I just needed them to trust me enough to jump that first time. And if you've ever been in that scenario with your kids, what's the next thing they want to do? Get out of the pool and jump again. And then get out of the pool and jump again. Because see, once you jump, once you take that step of faith, you discover, wow, I'm not going to drown after all. Got my mom's there, dad's there. Who, I'm not. You, you discover that you can trust God, that you can rely on his words. In other words, once you take action and jump, once you obey, you put yourself in a position where your faith can grow. But I'm telling you, if you don't ever jump, if you don't ever respond to God's nudging, his prompting, his commandments in his word, you will never experience that because you will never put yourself in the position where your faith can be tested and grow. Let me tell you, you don't need perfect faith. You just need enough faith to respond in obedience. 
You just need enough faith to jump. See, God doesn't say to us, hey, you need to have absolute confidence in me when he talks about faith. He says, Abraham, jump. He goes to the promised land. Abraham, take on the covenant, jump, right? Trust me even though it's frightening. Trust me even though it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Trust me for the outcome. I'm not gonna tell you where I'm taking you. I just want you to jump. So what kind of faith is God looking for? He's looking for people who have just enough faith to take that first step and to do what he asks. Just enough faith to jump that first time. But I'm telling you something, if you succumb to fear, you'll never obey and you'll never experience God's faithfulness. Some of you, maybe if you've been around church for a while, you may have heard of a woman named Henrietta Mears. And even if you haven't heard of her, I can guarantee you this, she's impacted your life in some way as a Christian. Uh, she was an incredible lady who had an amazing ministry in Southern California back in the 1930s, 1940s to 1950s. For example, she was the director of Christian education at Hollywood Presbyterian Church. She was in her early 20s when she took that job. She took it in 1928. At that time, the church was averaging about 450 people attending each week Sunday school. By 1933, five years, attendance went from 450 to an average of 6,500, okay? That's in a day before mega churches. That's incredible. During that time, now think about this. She mentored people like Bill Bright, who later founded Campus Crusade. Any of you in your college years, were you impacted by Campus Crusade? Or maybe you have kids in college right now and they're impacted by Campus Crusade. She also mentored Jim Rayburn, who started Young Life. Any of you impacted by Young Life or maybe your kids are being impacted by Young Life. She mentored a guy named Richard Halverson who served as the chaplain of the United States Senate from 1981 to 1994. She started a ministry in Hollywood that reached out to stars and stars like Roy Rogers. Some of us are old enough. See, that's not just a chicken place, okay? He was an old cowboy star. His wife, Dell Evans, they both became Christians through her ministry. Ronald Reagan, the president, the actor, said under her teaching, she was the woman of unbelievable faith. Never got married, never had kids. She just devoted herself to one thing, bringing people into a relationship with Christ and making and building disciples. She never stopped thinking about it. For example, one time she was so convinced that there was a need for a place for people to be able to get away from the hustle and bustle of life and to get along with God so they could worship and pray so that they could be renewed and reconnect with God. She just, it just started getting on her nerves. So she went out and she found a plot of land in Southern California in the San Bernardino Mountains. She had no money, she had no resources, but she's like, I don't care. I believe that God wants me to build a place for Christians so that they can get refreshed, they can get renewed. And as a result of her faith, one of the great Christian conference centers in America, Forest Home in Southern California, maybe you've heard of it, was started. By the way, a few years later in 1947, there was a young man who attended Forest Home. He needed to get away. He needed some time and it was there he had what he described as the pivotal crisis moment in his life. His name was Billy Graham. And it was there that he decided to go into full-time ministry, that he would become an evangelist. And just so you know, the last I heard, over 250 million people on the planet have heard the gospel because of Billy Graham in over 185 countries. A few years later, she got frustrated 
Because even though people went to church, she just didn't feel like there was enough good Bible study curriculum for people to learn, for people to grow, become disciples, to grow in their faith. So in her garage with no money, she started printing curriculum. Eventually, it became Gospel Light Publishing. And it was because she was so concerned that people would go to church every weekend and leave and not learn about God, that their lives wouldn't be transformed. Gospel Light Publishing, one of the biggest Christian publishing houses in America, 80 years later, still going strong. My point is her whole life was this unbelievable adventure, this unbelievable journey. In fact, I was sitting in Gary, I was talking to Gary one day about Henrietta Mears and all these things. He says, man, don't you just feel like a loser? When you hear, yeah, I said, yeah, we're, we're, we just had a little loser party, right? But when she was on her deathbed, Somebody asked her, Henrietta, if you could do it all over again, what would you do differently? Would you get married? Would you have children? What would you do differently? This was her answer. I would trust Jesus for more. I would have more faith. She said, if I could do it all over again, I would believe Jesus for more. See, I don't think it was an accident that she responded that way. I am positive that there were all kinds of critical junctures in her life on her journey when fear raised its head and said, Henrietta, this doesn't make sense. You need to slow down. You need to put on the brakes. But then God came along and said, hey, I'm right here. Don't be afraid. Jump. Just jump. See what I will do if you just jump. And so she did what Abraham did. She wasn't perfect and she wasn't infallible, but she was obedient. And when God prompted her, she jumped. She just walked by faith. See, let me tell you, you and I should take immense comfort in the fact that Abraham, this guy who lied about his wife, remember he pimped her out to Pharaoh and she ended up being one of his wives in his harem. He commits adultery with Hagar. This guy who laughed at God's promise, this guy who was held up as a paragon of faith, we should take immense comfort in the fact that he screwed up big time, made all kinds of mistakes, but he trusted God enough so that when God said jump, he jumped. So let me just ask you, where in your life is fear holding you back? God's nudging, see, but you're paralyzed. Maybe you're in a career and God's moving you toward a career change. Maybe God wants to move you toward full-time ministry but you're afraid of how are you gonna take care of the family? Who's gonna pay the bills? Maybe it is an adventure of faith and giving. You just can't get there. You're just paralyzed by fear. Maybe it's serving, but you realize, man, it's gonna take time in my life. And how's it gonna impact my family? And da, 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 da. But that's where God's nudging you. Maybe, maybe you're still carrying around anger and God's saying, you gotta let it go. You just gotta let it go. But your fear is, yeah, but if I let it go, what's gonna happen? How, who's who's going to make sure they pay, you know, if I let it go? See, that fear's holding you there. Maybe it's starting a new ministry. Hey, maybe it's sharing your faith. You know, 80% 80 of Americans believe that we should, Christians believe we should share our faith of how God has changed our life with other people. Only 60, but 61% of those who believe it haven't shared their faith in the last year. That means you're surrounded by people every day. People, let me tell you, if they take their last breath, they're going to hell. And you've got the answer to life after the grave. 
And God says, somebody's got to tell them. That's why I put you in your life. But fear is just paralyzing you. Where in your life is fear holding you back? This is my challenge. Don't let it. Trust God. Obey God. Just, just jump and see what God does. I've, there's hardly a weekend that goes by that I don't sit up here and look out at you and get the emails of how God is working through Hope Community Church and I hear the stories of life change and so many times I've asked my question, what if, what if we would have said no? What if fear would have won the day? And I can't tell you how many times Laura and I have had the conversation, wow, it was scary, but I'm so glad we jumped. I think in my life I got two things right. Marrying Laura, and moving here to start hope. I've made a lot more screw ups than that. But God nudge and you jump. You'll never know. You'll never know what God can do through you. You may be a Henrietta Mears just waiting to be discovered. But you gotta jump. Father, thank you for your faithfulness even when we are so far from being faithful. We're so imperfect and we're so fallible. But Father, you're not looking for perfection. You make us perfect and righteous through your son, Jesus Christ. And then you nudge, you speak, you prompt, you command us through your word because you have this abundant life that you want us to experience and experience to the full. But our fear is holding us back. I pray right now in this moment at all of our campuses that that fear that I believe comes from Satan will be shaken off. And with boldness, we hear your voice saying, don't be afraid. Trust me, don't be afraid. Just jump. You're not gonna drown, but you gotta jump. And may we discover your faithfulness like never before. In your name we pray, amen.